Well, for our reading, we're going to be in Romans 13, Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read that chapter with you, but before we do, I want to back up and get kind of a running start. If you remember, Romans is somewhat divided. The first 11 chapters are doctrine, where Paul explains in a way that's more full than he explains anywhere else. And we believe it's because this was not just for the church in Rome, of course, and for every believer that would read it afterward, but it was meant as an explanation to anyone who had any questions. What is it that Paul believes? He's going around the Roman world. He's being supported by Christians. And as he takes the gospel further and further, uh, you know, even wanting to take it to Spain, what is his understanding of all that God has been doing and will do? And so Paul gives such a full expression of that. Eleven chapters of doctrine. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, that wonderful word that is one of Paul's favorites, therefore, all right, because of that. Then chapter 12 through the end of the book, mainly focusing on the changes that these truths make in the life of a person who follows Christ. But at the end of chapter 11, and before he goes into these practical changes, in verse 33, down to verse 36, Paul can't help but interrupt himself again and to burst out with just one of the sweetest expressions of praise to God in all of the Bible. So I want to read verse 33, then down to the end of verse 2 in chapter 12. That's kind of the hinge on which the door is going to open. And then we'll jump to chapter 13 with those in mind. Verse 33, chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his his judgments. And unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord. Or who has become his counselor. Or who has first given to him. That it might be paid back to him again. For from him. And through him. And to him. Are all things. To him. Be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore. I urge you brethren. By the mercies of God. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, chapter 13 is going to give us a number of applications of that. Verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. 
For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, Not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Well, let's turn our hearts and let's seek that God together. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for this book that allows us to read things that captured the hearts and the thoughts and moved the hands and feet of believers thousands of years ago. From Adam to the end of Revelation and what we see you doing there. We see an ex- uh, th- that astonishing work of the triune God. Holy and pure, just. Hating sin perfectly, infinitely, and yet amazingly at the same time, merciful and patient, and gracious, giving and giving and giving in such lavish measure that we should be embarrassed. Kindness poured out on those who mock you, love, provision, daily expressions of your grace poured out on those that deny you exist. And even the worst on planet earth, those who have a Bible and use your words and like the Pharisees, twist them so as to make room for a life of self-centeredness under the guise of Christianity. God, you astonish us with your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have spelled it out so clearly in Scripture that there's no reason that we would need to abuse what you teach. We see what grace is. We see what we are. We see who you are and how Christ has accomplished things that we can never do. We see why you did it and how we might daily live on it. So God, let us lay aside every excuse, whatever it is, whether it's the day that we live in and the culture and the nation 
or the sad state of the American churches. God, what does it matter? We have him. We have your word. We have your spirit. So we lay aside the empty excuse and we ask this morning that you would help us to understand your will, to know and do your will, and that that would be our happiest, chief delight, to be able to live with you and for you and to you, to be able to devote the little areas of our life that on the outside seem so insignificant, but you bought them. And so, having created us and purchased us away from our sin and shame, God, we want to devote ourselves to all that pleases you. God, we pray that for the believer here who stumbles and drifts and perhaps they know things aren't perfect, but they are unaware of just how dangerous things are. In kindness, Father, reach down and show them, open their eyes to what sin has blinded them to. Discipline them if you have to, but bring them to yourself. For the unbeliever that holds you at what they feel is a safe distance and tells themselves that what they have presently is the best that life offers, or maybe that tomorrow somehow will be better than every yesterday. God, will you, will you rip those blinders off their eyes so that they can see the truth, the emptiness of living apart from you, the fullness of Christ? For the believer that faces so many obstacles, but by grace continues to believe. And though we feel at times our pace must be just so disappointing, you have not become impatient with us. We want our feet to be on a path of very clear, simple, Christ-centered obedience. So strengthen us, and not just here, but as we already prayed this morning, that you would work like this everywhere, that your name would be exalted. Every other option thrown down in the dirt, laughed at, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come and spread, that your people would live on your, on your constant supply of every good thing, trusting you. Forgiving others that sin against us because you continue to forgive us. God, we pray that this would be the case because it's your kingdom and not ours. So we ask these things in the name of your son. Amen. We've been looking at uh, the life of a Christian from the perspective of being disciples or being followers of Christ because... When we read the scriptures, we see that Christ not only commands us to come to him, but also to follow him and to follow Christ as we would follow anyone else. That that requires a very intentional focus on him, his pattern. How did he relate to the father? How did he relate to others? And while he is the son of God and there is so much of his life that is unique Yet he relates to the Father, and he applies the Father's word to his life in ways that you can, Christian. But we're not just focusing on his example, his pattern, but 
Following Christ also means that we follow his voice. You remember John 10 when he said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That is, a true believer reads this book and it's not just ancient words on a page. It's not just a curious thing or something that we do on Sunday. But there is a very real and living God who through this book speaks to us. And these words on these pages, in a sense, they they come alive and our hearts respond and we want to do what he says. So we follow his example. We obey his voice. Now, if we think about that, it's tempting to feel that this is unreasonable, you know, that to to ask us to embrace his claims and to get baptized and join a church Well, that's a lot, but well, we would say, well, that's reasonable. But to say that every area of life must be recalibrated and seen and approached now through the claims of Christ, we think, well, I don't know that I can do that. It's unreasonable in the sense that it's too difficult. And so maybe we feel that it's optional. It's for someone else who's not in my situation, you know, someone who is in a uh, a better marriage, a better family, who, who has better knowledge, who has more time. We, there's a thousand excuses that, you know, we kind of give to the Lord quietly. But they're all rejected. It is not optional. If you are a Christian, then you are a follower. You might be a bad follower and God will graciously deal with you to bring you along. But you are a follower. Now, the question is. Where do we receive the supplies that are sufficient for a life of following Jesus Christ in this kind of world? So I want us to look at that significant question now, and then I want us to see the answer, the dynamic, the mechanism, the tool, and the lifestyle that is so essential to receiving those supplies. And then we'll look at some specific applications. So the question, how is it, if you consider everything that's required, that you must live by him, with him, in him, for him, and that there isn't any circumstance, there isn't any personal shortcoming, your personality, the way you were raised, the people you live with, work with, the church you go to, the day you live in, the the government that's over you, none of those can really inhibit a true believer from walking with Christ. And that is such an exciting truth because I think that Christianity would be so empty. It would be bankrupt if all Christianity were is showing up twice a week to a church building and learning new concepts and understanding how they fit together and what that says about God and what that says about humanity. But what good is that? If you're like a little kid staring in the window of the palace and you see these people inside and they get to live with the king and they wear his clothes, they eat his food, they enjoy all the privileges of the royal family, but you're stuck on the porch, admiring, turning to the people next to you, explaining what we're seeing, but never entering in, never living daily with the king, for the king, by the king. What if Christianity is just you staring in the window at this wonderful feast, but you are poor and starving, and though you admire what the king is doing for other people, you tell yourself it's not for you, so you never press in? 
It's exciting to think that Christianity is a life that is lived with the living God and not just a set of concepts. But where do people like us get sufficient supplies for a life like that? Now, the reason we're looking at this is because as we've talked about following Christ, one of the key areas, fundamental, which is why we're looking at it before we look at some specifics. One of the great realities is that Christ was a believer. He perfectly trusted what his father revealed in the word and lived on those realities. And you have to do the same thing. He did it sinlessly and you will not do it sinlessly, but you must do it truly, really. Faith is not kind of a, a positive thinking where we just hope in a hopeful outcome. Faith is you grabbing hold of what God has revealed. And because this God never lies, it changes the way you think. It changes what you desire. It changes how you live and make your choices. And so the whole of the interior of a believer is exercised toward these truths that are outside of us. But how do we get the great realities of the Bible from the page into your life? Well, there are some things that we do know about this sufficiency or this supply. So let me give you them kind of quickly. First of all, we do know that it's not really in us. And that's not just religious talk. Every true believer knows that by the scriptures, but also by bitter experience. It is just the most natural thing for a Christian to feel that having been born from above, having been made alive in Christ, forgiven, adopted, indwelt by the spirit, you know, eyes open, heart melted and the chains off so that I can follow this God now. Having been given all that, it is just natural to think that we're, we're a lot stronger than we used to be. We're a lot wiser than we used to be. And, and our heart is a lot purer than it used to be. But when it comes to living the Christian life, have you not found that while a Christian is in Christ, you still have all those weaknesses you had before if you're depending on yourself? That is... You still can look at a situation and be confused. You think, I, I don't know what I'm to do in this situation. There seems to be so many choices in front of me, and many of them look like they will accomplish good things, right things, but I don't know which one to choose. And so you have to go back to the scriptures, and you have to cry out to God and say, Christ is my wisdom. Will you teach me through this book what I'm supposed to do? The Christian is still weak. There are tasks that are in front of us and you think, I, I don't think I can really muster what it takes. I'm not become strong. I am still a weakling, but I'm a weakling who has been placed in Christ. And so I know that I can get from him all the strength I need to really do what he's commanded me to do. And I must do. What about the heart? Our hearts are like water. They're so easily shifted. They're fickle. They're, they're you know, double-minded at times. We, we look one way, we look the other. We have a face that looks both ways sometimes. We talk out of both sides of our mouth. 
Where will you get a consistency in the heart? How will your heart be loyal to Christ to the end? It's not from you. It's from the one whose heart is perfectly in love with the Father and who is in the process of transforming you into his image. So I hope we understand before we go any further that it is essential that we do get this supply because we don't have inside of us, we haven't been given a package where now that you're a Christian, you have a box of everything you need and so you can just get it as you need it. That's not the way Christianity works. And you have not become a better person because of the cross. It is that you have been brought into union with him. And he is at work in you. But that requires us to understand that we still don't have it. Another thing we can agree on is that there really is a fullness in God. There is an uncreated creator. The uncaused cause of everything. It was mentioned in our prayer time this morning. God possesses an infinite fullness of every real spiritual perfection. And God possesses this a majesty and immensity that can never be measured. He possesses all sufficiency in himself. He is able to do all his good pleasure. And no one can resist him. When we think of God and we think of his fullness... The question is, but, but how does that get from God to us? Well, we also ought to know if we've been going to church and reading our Bibles that the infinite fullness in the triune God has been given to the Son of God as he is united to our humanity. As eternal God, he possesses it, all that fullness. But as a human, he does not possess all that fullness until God the Father unites that godness of the Son with that humanness. It's a mystery, but this is how Paul describes it in Colossians 1. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. That is, Jesus Christ as our representative, as our mediator, as the great bridge between humanity and God. Christ, the Son of God, and the true human in one, has been given all the fullness of the eternal God. And he has been given it for the purpose of sharing it with everyone he represents. In Colossians chapter 2, we read that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. But then he says this, and in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. Same Greek word. All the fullness dwells in him. You have been made full. All the completeness dwells in him. You have been made complete. It is by union with Christ. And we talked about this last week. By God in eternity past, placing the believer in his son in every aspect of his plans of redemption. So that, as one old writer said, God never has contemplated, the Father has never looked at the Son, if we could put it in these human terms, he has never contemplated his Son apart from his people, from those who would follow him. 
He has never contemplated the believer apart from the Son. And that wonderful union is actually realized and experienced when in time, someplace on planet Earth, you repent and you believe and you run to him and you lay everything down in a happy surrender, conquered by his love, and you take with both hands all that he is. Union with Christ, eternally, yes, but actually, by faith. There is one other thing that we're clear about, I hope, and that is, while all this fullness does dwell in God, and he has caused all that fullness of perfection and supply to be in his son for his people, and he has united his people to his son, as you believe, then that great door, that channel is open. But that fullness in Christ for his followers, though it is real, is not automatic. There is a way of responding to God moment by moment, hour by hour, week after week, year after year. And in walking in harmony with God on this path, the believer constantly receives all that is required, all that's needed to live the Christian life. So how does it go from the God-man in whom the Christian is living united to him in a mysterious but very real and spiritual vital connection how does it go from Christ to you how does it go from the concept of union with Christ to actually affecting how we live and that's what we want to look at this morning and that brings us back to the issue of faith do you remember that a few weeks ago when we began to talk about faith we said that faith has two great general activities, two arenas, we could say. Faith enables a believer to take God at his word and to do what God said to do, to persevere in our duties, to keep obeying, to keep going in the right direction. So Hebrews chapter 11, in each of those examples that the writer of Hebrews gives, he mentions a task that God has given the person or a, or a lifestyle that we admire, like Enoch walk, walking with God. And we see that the way that these believers were enabled to continue on the right path of duty or obedience and not to turn away and give up was because of faith. Faith enables a man, a woman, a young person to really stay on course. Even if everyone else goes off course, because you have the word of God, you don't have to. There's a second activity of faith, and that's what we're talking about this morning. And that has to do with faith's drawing daily supplies from Christ or living on Christ. And there are so many metaphors in the New Testament for this and the Old Testament. I mentioned to you many times in the past month, a little book called The ABCs of Faith. I don't think it's in print. Um, I have an old copy. Uh, it's by a Dutch theologian in the 1800s. But basically, it just goes through from A to Z, so to speak. It goes through, but I say so to speak because it's in Dutch and I don't read Dutch, all right? But, but the English words are actually quite close to the Dutch. It goes through and gives just 
all those metaphors in the Bible for faith. So things like abiding in him. Well, that's faith. And that's how we draw supplies. Resting in him. That's faith. Leaning upon him. That's one way that we can describe the activity of faith. Depending upon him. Trusting him. All right, Responding to him. Receiving from him. So many. The one I want us to focus in on this morning is what Paul says at the end of Romans 13 that I read to you. Putting on Christ. Now, when we talk about putting on Christ, there is a great little book that I want to mention, written by a man named William Mason in the 18th century. If you know Jeff Frederick, you may know of this book because this is Jeff's, I think it's Jeff's favorite book other than the Bible. It's a book that Jeff has recommended to so many people and purchased and given away. The full title is The Christian's Pocket Companion, and it's a little book. The subtitle is this, The One Thing Needful to Make Poor Sinners Rich and Miserable Sinners Happy. And the entire book, and it's a small book, the entire book describes the daily activity of faith drawing upon Christ using that one metaphor from Romans 13, and it also shows up in Galatians 3, clothing yourself with Christ or putting on Christ. And he talks about how, that, how you do that in some specific ways. Mainly, he talks about the big categories of in your thought life, in your conscience, and in your memory. Now, I don't want to re-preach his book, but I'll give you a couple of quotes from it, and you can read it yourself if you wish. This is what Mason says. I will, to my latest breath, insist upon this, that all is not right between Christ and a soul if it is not earnestly desiring to maintain constant, uninterrupted, holy fellowship with Christ, pursuing those means which promote the life and power of practical godliness, and avoiding all things which are Contrary to our most holy faith, we should live in sweet enjoyment of all the rich blessings of his kingdom and be holy and happy every day in him. And then he uses that metaphor, put on Christ, that Paul uses, as the vehicle for the rest of the book of describing how you do that. Really, we're just talking about what Paul talked about in Galatians 2.20, a verse that we probably all know. I have been crucified with Christ. Said the old Paul's gone, Saul of Tarsus. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, because Paul is still here and he's still thinking and desiring and choosing. How do you do that, Paul? Well, the life... That I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I go continually, daily, hourly to Christ. Not the Jesus I imagined Paul could save, but to the Christ that I find described in scriptures. To the Christ that really is. And I lay hold of every description of his person. And his work. And I take them 
one at a time. And I live on them. I believe what he says and live as if he isn't lying to me because he isn't. The life of faith. Now, where does let me let me give you the two places that Paul uses this metaphor of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. And I think I started to say at the beginning and then got excited and ran to something else. The reason we're looking at this right now is because we are going to take toward the end of the summer a very long and serious look at following Jesus Christ in the way that he obeyed the commands of his father happily, wholeheartedly. So how do you come to the many commands in the Bible, Old or New Testament, how do they apply to you? And how do you live upon Christ? How do you put on Christ in such a way that when you face a command and your heart loves that command, and it's not a burden to you to obey your heavenly father, you have what it takes to do that command and to do it so happily. You would never think of it as legalism where you're earning God's love by obeying. You would think of it as a privilege of living with the king. So if we're going to end up there, then we're going to have to understand the activity of faith. And we'll use this metaphor, putting on Christ daily. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 3 in verse 26 and 27. I want you to see what Paul says there about putting on Christ. And then we're going to turn back to Romans 13. So Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. Paul is talking about real righteousness and what the law does in showing us our sinfulness and driving us to the cross. But at the end of that discussion, he says this in verse 26. For you are all, speaking to the Christians, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So every Christian has been adopted into the family of God. You are a son or a daughter of God if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer. So there's that great statement. You are a child of God. How? Having been baptized, having been placed into Christ. Faith. Verse 27, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So he's talking about their conversion. Look back. Do you remember when you heard the gospel, you embraced the gospel, you believed what he said, and there was a great exchange that occurred in your soul. You became a child of God. He became your elder brother. He became your king, your everything. By faith, you put on Christ. So that's one way to describe putting on Christ. The very beginning of the Christian life. Conversion. In repentance, to turn away from the lies, and in faith, to grab hold of Christ and dress yourself in the realities of Him. But that's just the start. Now, jump to Romans 13, turn back to the end of Romans 13. And in verse 14, in chapter 13, he's not talking about conversion, he's talking about the Christian life. Because of the mercies of God, 
presenting yourselves as a living sacrifice, an ongoing, daily, living uh, consecration, a cheerful giving of myself to God the rest of my life. And verse 14, he describes at the heart of that, this activity. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So do not put on, don't clothe yourself with what you used to clothe yourself with. The stuff the world says you need. Because that makes provision for the old way of life. But clothe yourself or put on or make provision for the new life by Drawing upon, abiding in, leaning on, trusting, receiving from, or putting on Jesus Christ. So the Christian life begins with this activity and the Christian life continues with that activity. Richard on Roberts said it this way one time when he was with us. Simple statement. Mr. Roberts is always helpful because he's so simple. The way in is the way up. How did you come to Christ? I turned away from and turned toward repentance and faith. Okay. How are you going to progress in Christ? Every day, how are you going to live for Christ? That was the opening of the gate. How are you going to walk the path? Same way. I turn away from the emptiness of all the things that contradict the word of God and his claims. I turn away even from myself. No hope there. And I turn to him. And by faith, I clothe myself with all that he says he is for the sinner. And I just do that every day. Mason in his book says, putting on Christ implies renewed acts and fresh applications of the believing soul to Christ. Who he is. Who Christ is. And what he has provided for you. So renewed. Refreshed applications. Taking again and again and again and again. A truth about Jesus Christ. As our savior. And what he provides in this great new covenant. And taking them one at a time. And it's like putting them on as your shirt. And pants and socks and shoes. And living in them instead of putting on what you used to put on and living in it. Well, that's the great principle. That's how the Christian who is united to Christ gets this fullness from our mediator into our life. From the pages of the Bible describing it into my everyday thoughts and desires and choices. So that I can live the Christian life. Let me give you a few specific examples. I told you that Mason talks about mind and conscience and memory. I'd, I will just mention one of those, the conscience. Because I think that is the primary one when we think of the daily dynamic of going to God and seeing what he has provided in Christ in the scripture, taking hold of that boldly and saying to the Father, you gave me a right to this. So I'm believing you, taking you at your word, and I'm going to live in light of this, and I am depending on you to supply it while I live on it. 
So think about the conscience. If the conscience, which reports to us right and wrong activity, that's all it can do, and every human has a conscience, and the conscience is a very imperfect guide, you know, you can have a conscience that's misinformed, and you might feel bad about doing things that you shouldn't have felt bad about, and you might feel fine with doing things that you should have been ashamed of. But the conscience, as imperfect as it is, is it's, it's just like a, a little law inside your mind, a little judge that says to you, that was right. That was not right. Before Christ saved you, if you're a Christian, before he awakened you and brought you to himself, what did you do? How did you dress your conscience so that you could make it through a life in which you were very imperfect? I mean, how did you deal with guilt? How did you deal with shame? How did you deal with the memory of people that you've hurt? And you can't make it right. They're not here anymore. Or there's no way they would let you. How did you endure with a conscience that continued to point out that you do wrong? How did you not go insane? Well, we all have ways of dressing the conscience that are wrong. For example... We can kind of clothe the conscience with things that we think reduce the severity of our sin. Okay, I'm not perfect, we say, but I'm I'm not that bad. Come on. And we try to reduce it so that the sting of our conscience, our guilt, our shame is, you know, brought into such a, it's so small that we can live with it. Here are some ways. Did you ever point to your circumstances when your conscience bothered you? And you said, well, look, I mean, I know that wasn't the very best thing to do. But in that situation, I mean, you you understand. It's pretty understandable why I did it. And you justify some form of selfishness by your circumstance. And you clothe your conscience with a lie. Or you might point to the infrequency of that sin. Yes, I did that, and yeah, I don't think there's anybody I I can blame. You know, it wasn't a circumstance. It it was just me. That one's all on me, but I mean, I I don't do it very often. Is that how you clothe your conscience? What about pointing to others who fail far worse than you do in the very area you're bothered about? And you say, well, okay, I'm not perfect, and I can't blame other people, and yeah, I do it more than I should. I'm, I'm ashamed of that. But I think I'm not really in hot water because everybody around me is doing it worse than I was. I mean, they're worse. They're further along. You ever clothe your conscience like that? Have you clothed your conscience by saying, okay, I did it. I'm not necessarily any better than anybody else. But have you seen conscience? Have you seen these areas that I'm doing so well in? I'm sure that you probably would agree That even though that was a sin, it's not that big a deal now because of all the good I'm doing. That's the old way of getting your conscience dressed in the morning, making it through life. How do you put Christ on in your conscience? Well, we refuse to get dressed in those filthy, stinking rags. Do you have clothes that, you know, you come home from work? 
And um, now this doesn't happen if you, know, you work in a bank. But I mean, if you work outside and you come home and you have sweat through those clothes. I remember working with, uh, with a company that cut trees away from power lines and we were in Louisiana. And I would put on a set of clothes in the morning and you had to wear long sleeves because of, you were up in the tree and there was all kinds of stuff that would scratch you and bite you and eat you. So I'd get up in there and i think, what am I doing here? And I would, I'm scared to hide. So I'm 60 foot up in a bucket truck and the bucket is loose. And I'm saying to God, you've got to keep me alive because I'm supposed to be a preacher one day, but I got to do this job to pay the bills. And I sweat through those clothes by lunch. I mean, you know, they were a different color. Now, this was close to where we lived, so I could run home, or at least I could go to my car, and I'd put on another set of clothes after lunch, and I'd sweat through those. Now, you bring those clothes home, and you, if you're like me, you drop them all over the house as you're headed to the shower. So it looks like the rapture happened, and John's gone, and there's just pieces of clothing. And Misty has to pick them up. Now, what if Misty doesn't pick them up? What if she thinks to herself... I'm not picking up his clothes anymore because he's a grown person. And obviously his mom didn't teach him this, but he needs to learn it. So it's just going to sit there. And I let it sit there. Maybe they're in a pile by the shower in the bathroom floor and they sit there and sit there. And then you pick them up. You're looking for clothes to go to work in. All my work clothes are dirty. I run to the bathroom. There's a pile of clothes. Those are work clothes. I pick them up and I think, I wonder if I could wear these. You take a big breath. Ah, why did Misty not wash my clothes? And you throw them down and, and you think, I could never put those back on. But every day we got up and we saw that we had sinned again. And we went to rags with holes all in them. We should have been so ashamed to wear them. And they reeked of every type of sin. And it's not just a week old, it's a lifetime of sin in that fabric of our self-righteousness. And we told God we would do better. And we told God that we were, at least we weren't as bad as other people. And we put those clothes on and went to work. Or you can put Christ on. Think about what the scripture says. Clothing yourself with the very aspects of Christ's work, which are designed for Sinners, not for good people. So I'm just going to run through a few that you already know. Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so you look at that filthy pile of clothes when you're bothered, when you've sinned again, when, when your conscience is angry at you and you could, you could go put back on the old clothes and say, well, at least I didn't do such and such. Well, at least I haven't been as unkind as that person was. Or you can go and you can put on the righteousness of Christ and say, God, it's true. I indeed, but Christ. And he has washed me and provided a perfect righteousness so that my conscience can be satisfied. I mean, if God's law is satisfied, can't your little lawyer in your head be satisfied? If God, the lawmaker and judge and king that you lived against is satisfied with Christ's life and death, can the little judge in your mind not be satisfied? What can anyone say against you if God, the judge, is satisfied with what Christ has done for the sinner and you are putting his clothes on, his righteousness on? Think of Hebrews 10, verse 14. 
For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christ does not have to die again. Think of 1 John 1, 9. The justice of, of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you considered how important the justice is of God when it comes to how you receive mercy? You go to him and you say, can I have the clothes of Christ's cleanness again today, God? I'm not clean on my own today. Well, yes, you may. It would be wrong of God to say no to you. Why can he not say no to the Christian? Because in Christ, who has suffered the penalty for that very sin and obeyed in the way that you didn't obey, he has provided a perfect removal of guilt and provision of righteousness. And it would be unjust for the Father to charge Christ with your sin and then to say to you, I will not. I will not look at my son. I will charge you also. John says in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, right, a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. And it's not just what he did when he appeared 2,000 years ago. Think of what Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 24. Think of the present appearing. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. When he was raised and ascended, he didn't go to an earthly temple. He went to heaven itself, the writer says. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Are you ever afraid, Christian, when your conscience cries out and says, you're a Christian, you know better, you, you should have turned your back on that sin. Why, why did you risk dishonoring God again? Why have you displeased him? Why choose the emptiness again of all people? Why you? And you, you agree with every accusation and you have the option of just curling up on the side of the road and saying, I, I give up. Or you get up and you look in the wardrobe that Christ has provided and there is every possible righteousness. There is soap for your soul. There is everything you need to walk right before the Father's face without fear that he will say, what are you doing dressing yourself in my son's righteousness again after what you did yesterday? And the answer is, but he is still appearing for us. So Paul can write, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So, simple example. What do you do when you have done wrong? And as a Christian, that cuts much more now than it ever did before you were a Christian. It matters to you. So your conscience is worse, more painful. 
Do you pick up the old stinky rags? I'll do better. It wasn't that bad. I don't do it often. Or do you consciously go to the passages where Christ's provision for sinners is explained and you say, I will take you at your word. I'll get dressed in that righteousness and live for you again today. Let me give you a couple of other examples. What about the uncertainties of tomorrow? When we're young, we are naive and most of us are fairly kind of just hopeful. Life is going to be good as I grow up. But when you're grown up and you have a lot of people you're caring for, you're not as naive and you might be plagued with an anxious heart. What will tomorrow bring? What will that phone call 2 a.m. be? Will it be one of my grown children? Will it Will it be a person I care about? Is this bad news about my parent? In the old life, you might have just clothed yourself with things like this. I try to prepare myself for every possible sorrow. So I brace my heart and I think it's going to be bad. And so that's how I deal with it. Or I try to avoid every possible pain. And so I isolate myself or I try to calm my anxiety by the opposite, by telling myself, no, it's going to be, tomorrow's going to be better than yesterday. So whether it's the doctor's visit or the phone call from the child or the late call in the middle of the night, how are you going to clothe your anxious heart? Well, you could go to Christ. Psalm 110, he rules at the father's right hand, stretching out a scepter. Revelation 5, he sits on the throne, opening a scroll, accomplishing all the father plans. Psalm 23, the king at the right hand of the father is also a shepherd, walking me to the green pastures, but also accompanying me through the worst, darkest moments possible on planet earth. He is the one that feeds me in front of my enemies. Romans 8, 28, because of these things, I know that all things are working together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That God is using all these things and all the sad events of the coming future will be part of what God uses to bring about the very best. Even what's best for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Matthew chapter 6, I clothe myself with Christ who has brought me into his family. And now I have a heavenly father who provides everything I need. And when you have a father that is that perfect, why would you worry about tomorrow morning? So the old way of getting dressed or the new way? Do you get dressed with Christ? And that is the cure to your anxious thoughts. I'll give you just one more and then we'll close. What about when you follow Christ? And in following Christ, it costs you your identity with the world or your reputation or your honor. All of us have things that we think make us have worth. We say, well, okay, I'm not the most beautiful person, but I'm the hardest worker. Okay, I'm not the hardest worker, but I'm the most capable, most gifted, most intelligent. Okay, well, maybe I'm not that, but I'm the kindest. Maybe I'm not any of those, but I'm the morally, I'm morally the most pure and careful. I don't know what you think gives you worth. 
I think growing up, I just thought that being the class clown gave me worth. If I could make all of my friends laugh, then I had worth. I never thought I was the nicest. I used to tell my parents, like, well, anybody can be nice, which I don't actually think now. <laughs> and now I think, ooh, that's hard. Okay, so I wasn't the smartest. My family didn't have a lot of money. I didn't wear the best clothes. I wasn't the handsomest. I wasn't the best at sports, but I could be funny. After I became a Christian, the temptation shifted. I could be really religious. Maybe that gives me worth. When you follow Christ, the scripture is clear. It will cost you, in many ways, the honor of this world. People will say things like, you know, you used to be, but ever since you started going to church, you're not that anymore. And if it's something that you thought gave you worth, then it cuts at the heart and you think, God, well, who am I? Who is John Snyder if he's not this? Who are you if following Christ means you lay aside certain things and the people that live with you and work with you and your closest friends look at you and say, you know, you used to be, but you're not anymore. The old way of handling that was to really focus on those things that we thought brought us worth or value, whether it was being the hardest worker or the most intelligent or funniest or kindest. The new way is to get up and get dressed with Christ. He is my identity. His preciousness is my honor. I am his. He is mine. And if that's true, that alters everything, even altering at the depth of our being, our identity. The old John is gone. A new John is here. Well, what gives him worth? Christ. He, the king, loves me, has bought me, has made me his. So I don't have to have the church's affirmation or family's affirmation or the people I work with or go to school with. I mean, it doesn't mean you're a jerk. It doesn't mean you don't act correctly. It means you're free to live for him without having to milk every relationship for your worth. Certainly there will come many opportunities for you to lay down your reputation in order to follow Christ, even if it's a reputation for being religious and kind, because following Jesus Christ will take you down paths in obeying him, that in our culture do not look kind, that do not look religious, but they're Christ-like. And you'll be able to do that if you got up and dressed yourself with Christ and his love. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 7, there's that wonderful little verse that says, Unto you which believe, he, Christ, is precious. There are other ways to translate that. One way is to say, this preciousness is for you who believe. That's not nearly as poetic and nice, but it says the same thing. But I want to point that verse out to you because the word precious is a word that in the Greek can mean treasure. Unto you who believe, Christ is your treasure. Or Christ, the great treasure, is for you 
believer. But the world doesn't get it, doesn't want him. But the Greek word is more often used for honor. Unto you who believe, Christ is your honor. I think that we could combine the two ideas, and I think that's appropriate, that Christ is our treasure or our honor. Can you imagine being a person who received a gift from someone who was fabulously wealthy, and the gift that is so shocking that it becomes your identity for the rest of your life? If you were the person, all right, we're going to say Ron Franks, for no reason that we'd know, Ron Franks is contacted by the CEO of Amazon. And he says, you know what? We just did a random program on our computer. Your name came up. I'm giving you everything. You would no longer know Ron Franks as Ron Franks. He would have a new identity. He would be the guy that got all the wealth of Amazon. That guy changes his whole identity. The whole world would know that guy. Christian, I know the world does not know the measure of Christ's worth. But when he gave himself to you and took you for himself, Amazon, the wealth there or in Microsoft, it's nothing. You're that guy that Christ loved. You're that girl that has Christ as hers. That changes everything. For the rest of your life, you're not Ron Franks or John Snyder or, or Kathy Strevel or, or Peggy Steele. You're the girl or the guy that has Christ. Whole new identity. If you clothe yourself with him. Well, let me close, as I said. I want to do it with a quote. And it's a long quote. You got your thinking caps still? Have you passed out yet? This long. Hang with me. It's old words. It's William Mason. 18th century. Bad news. He's quoting an old guy. 17th century. Okay? So I'm going to try to read it well, but I'll probably mess up. You hang with me. And if you want the quote, I'll uh, take a picture of it and I'll shoot it to you in a text if you request it. In this, in this part of the book, Mason says, this, why should you put on Christ? He gives all these reasons, like a good old writer. And then he says, it is the most Christ-honoring thing you can do to clothe yourself with Christ in every way that you need. We might feel it's the opposite. It's kind of greedy. You know, I'm trying to use him. But Mason says, no, use him. Or in other words, fuel the Christian life. Fuel obedience with what he is providing. Don't leave it up on a shelf. So Dr. Sibbs, that is Richard Sibbs from the 17th century, Puritan pastor, very tender-hearted Puritan, said this. This is the main point in religion. And the comfort of a Christian to be lost in themselves and to be only found in Christ. Not having their own righteousness, but the righteousness of God in Christ. This is a mystery which no one but a believing soul. None see corruption. Um, 
Sorry, this is a, I knew I'd mess it up. This is a mystery which no one knows but a believing soul. No one sees the corruption of their heart more than a Christian. No one sees themselves free more than a Christian. They have an inward sight of their corruption, and they have an inward faith to see God reconciled in Christ. There can be no greater honor to Christ than this. In the sense of sin and of need and feeling your imperfection and stain and the blemishes to wrap yourself in the righteousness of Christ with boldness. To go clothed in the garments of Christ to the very throne of grace. It is an honor to Christ to attribute so much to his righteousness that clothing yourself with it, you can boldly break through the fear of the fire of God's justice and all those terrifying attributes when we see them satisfied in Christ. For Christ, with his righteousness, could go through the justice of God, having satisfied it to the full for you. And you being clothed with the righteousness and the satisfaction of Christ, you may go through as well. It is the character of a careful, believing Christian soul to value the righteousness of Christ, laboring, living, dying to appear before God in that alone. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you provide through the Son. But we need help to look away from ourselves, to believe what you say in Scripture, and to grab hold of it piece by piece and get dressed with Christ in every way that we need him so that the world would see how great a Savior he is, so that he would be honored. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I'll read Paul's closing words to Romans, and then we just have a moment of silence, sitting down, and then we'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.